So I'm thrilled to be joined here with Nadia um, Okamoto. She is the founder and head of an organization called Period. Mm -hmm. She's 19 years old. Yes. Wow. She is, we, we proudly claim you as a uh, <laughs> alumni of the Her Lead program, a uh, partnership between Vital Voices and Ann Inc. Um, uh, just a few years ago. Um, but you have soared. You really have. Um, and I would love to hear first about the organization mm -hmm. um, and, and what it was like at the time that you came to, to Her Lead, what was going on in your life at that time, and then how you, you came to, to found this organization. Yeah. So yeah, I'm the founder and executive director of Period, the menstrual movement. And so Period, we're a youth-run global organization that provides and celebrates menstrual health through service, education, and advocacy. So we do that through two pathways. One, through the global distribution of menstrual products in the form of care packages um, that supply women with everything they need for an entire menstrual cycle, and we do reusable distribution as well. And then we have a global network of campus chapters at universities and high schools around the U.S. that work a lot in the advocacy field, policy field, or service field as well. Um, so that's period and what it's grown to be. When I came to Hurley in 2014, in the summer of 2014, it was a life-changing experience. Like I came as a scared teenager with a lot of ideas. I can't imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> but the year before that, this, like the nine months before that, mm. my family experienced living without a home of our own. I experienced being in a really sexually and physically abusive relationship. Mm. Like, I was beat up for the first time by that person, sexually assaulted for the first time. I was, in that previous year, I had started realizing that I had grown up with sexual abuse and physical abuse in my family, and the questionable relationships I had were actually wrong. And I didn't say anything yet. I was just starting to realize that. Mm. And it was also a year where I had developed this habit of cutting myself because I felt like I had a reason to punish myself. I felt voiceless. and. It's incredible, actually, that you can talk about all those things. Yeah, well, so I openly. couldn't. I couldn't. So coming to her lead, I had this idea because when my family was um, with not living in our home of our own, I connected with these homeless women and con collected an anthology of them using toilet paper, most commonly brown paper, grocery bags, socks, anything they could find to absorb their menstrual blood and what it would feel like to have rashes or what it would feel like to know that it was better to sit in one place and wait your period out. Um, I had a lot of ideas because I learned that it was the number one reason why girls were missing school in developing countries and there was a sales tax on menstrual products in, the, in most states of the US but not on Rogaine and Viagra and mm. to me it was just like okay old man <laughs> hair growth and erections are not taxed but my period is a luxury like I, I was starting to think yeah. about all these things. And I'd grown up with a really strong-headed mom who encouraged me to apply, encouraged me to say, okay, you're angry about it, do something about it. I didn't have any family resources, so it wasn't something where I could go buy a bunch of products and start distributing them. And I think that because of everything I had gone through and not processed yet, I wasn't ready to feel empowered enough to, to take charge. So I came to her lead with all of that in mind, like ideas simply to address 20 periods a week. That's all I wanted to do, 20 periods a week. And within the first, within the four days of the conference, we had our storytelling uh, workshop that I remember very vividly because there was an opportunity to stand up at the podium and tell your story in two minutes. And I was in tears, a mess. Uh, it was a terrible speech looking back on it, but it was one of the most empowering and memorable experiences because it was the first time that I said the word homeless out loud and it was the first time that I said sexual abuse or sexual assault aloud. 
Mm. I'm getting emotional talking about it. It was literally the first time I had ever claimed that. Mm. And I think in that week to realize that, like, as a 16-year-old, I had a voice and the potential to make a difference. And women like you and this foundation that was started by Hillary Clinton and to see these amazing ambassadors and mentors in front, um, like the amazing mentors of this, this fellowship, say that we could do it and be moved to tears by our telling our stories. Like I remember looking up and seeing um, Maria Pacheco mm -hmm. in tears, yeah. like a woman who has persevered and inspired so many, crying about my story and caring about me. It was, it was just a moment I remember so vividly. Mm. So it was basically an experience where I realized I had a voice. I felt empowered because for the first time there were women that I only dreamed about meeting telling me that I could make a difference. So I went back and on the plane ride back I still have the notebook where I drew out the logos. I wrote down the ideas I had. Um, I chose a name by going on thesaurus and typing truck into thesaurus and getting the word camion and called it camions of care. And that was how my organization started. Um, two months later, I had a business plan together. I identified a business partner who liked finances because I hated them. <laughs> we sat good. for Smart. six hours in a Starbucks and made our plan. And that weekend, two days later, we were distributing product, 20 packages. And we ended up going out on the street, giving them out, and ending up with a line of women who wanted product that we had to spend more time saying no to because we had ran out. And so we went back, redid our whole business plan. The next week, we were 40 packages a week. The next week, we were at 100. And we literally grew exponentially. And I actually just checked the number before I got here. But now we can say that in the last two and a half years, we've addressed over 91,000 periods through 47 nonprofit partners that we're continually sustaining in 25 states and 15 countries. And we've now registered over 97 campus chapters at universities and high schools around the United States. Wow. And we're launching a bunch of global media campaigns that are pushing forward what we call the menstrual movement, which is fighting for equitable access to menstrual health and breaking down the stigma around periods. And we have been labeled as the organization leading that charge with all of this youth energy. And we're the organization pushing forward the gender um, um, considerations in the menstrual movement, pushing against the sales tax um, in the states, mobilizing on a grassroots level. And so this has just grown to more than anything I thought it would be. And I think it really started with her lead. And it was just that one summer of t taking two months to just think about the potential that I had and realizing with social media and Google at my fingertips, I had everything I needed. And that's mm -hmm. a privilege to have in the United States, right? Like I had everything I needed at my fingertips. All I needed to do was take action. And I really mean it when I say that Vital Voices has seen me through that growth of mm. starting my empowerment as a public servant and as an, as an advocate, um, starting me as a girl, like literally s in, in introducing us as girls with big ideas. And now I'm here with the LEAD Fellowship and it's introduced as leading women. Mm. And I think that the first day I just called my mom and I said, Mom, I really am a woman now because <laughs> Vital Voices said so. So I think that it's been so amazing to have that support and influence. Wow. Wow, what an incredible story. And I mean, listening to you, I mean, it gives me chills. It's, it's well, a really beautiful you. story, <laughs> and I, you know. But, but really, it is all about you, you know. It is about you and wh what you did with the opportunity, and um, it seems like it came at the right time, which is great. Yeah. So what does Generation Z 
which you are mm -hmm. a part of, yeah. feminism look like? Or would Generation Z even identify with being a feminist? I think that it's really complicated to make an overarching summary of what Gen Z sees as feminism. I would say that with my with my peers and with what I've seen and understood and what I read, I think what Gen Z sees is there are two kind of new movements in feminism. One perspective is feminism is not women over men, feminism is gender equality. Mm -hmm. And that's often seen as white feminism because it leaves out a lot of intersectional issues in relation to the issue of equality overall. But that's one big piece and that's what you know Emma Watson made it big on saying you know feminism is a synonym for gender equality and I think that is a big movement of saying don't see this as the man hating movement that mm -hmm. you might think it is it's really men have to be a part of this because it's about gender equality and then there's the side of Gen Z that says we just fighting for equality because gender is a social construct and we're not fighting to be feminine and we're not fighting to be more masculine or fighting for either of those because both of those are social constructs and this new wave of you know this very socially progressive idea that we're not going to subscribe to anything and it even goes to race too we're not going to subscribe to anything that keeps us in a box and gives us trait labels and gives us glass ceilings to subscribe to we're just going to say are you a human I see you as a human and how can we give equitable opportunities to people or equal opportunities to people regardless of their identity or what body they were born into, what skin color that they have, and treat them as equals, um, but without acknowledging feminine versus masculine. And I think that what we're missing right now in terms of moving Gen Z forward and actually being productive in feminism and the women's movement is by saying, Gen Z needs to be able to embrace those new ideas, but also be able to be aware and understanding of what other ideas were, mm -hmm. which is why I think it's been so fascinating to continue studying history in college or wanting to because you ha I have to acknowledge that even though a lot of my peers refuse to subscribe to being feminine, studying women like Gloria Steinem who fought to own yeah. femininity and the amount of perseverance that and resilience that took and for you know me and my peers to suddenly say I don't want to be feminine I'm not feminine yeah. me wearing heels is not me being feminine this is me wearing whatever I want regardless of what society tells me you know I think that it's important to see the history of those views too yeah, yeah. which is why this program the BV lead has been so powerful because I've been able to interact with the millennial women who feel very strongly about Gen Z intruding on their platform of being the activist generation. And, you know, I've been able to interact with people, women from around the world who have never even thought about disregarding gender. And so you see that. And I think that what's missing in Gen Z, especially in America, is just being unaware of it and saying, yeah. I'm going to be stubborn and only look at my right. ideas. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, from my perspective, having worked on women's issues over the last more than 20 years, you know, when I first started getting um, engaged in these issues, so many women leaders who mm -hmm. came before me, the sort of baby boomers, you know, I'm, I'm Generation X, um, but the baby boomer generation, it was very much like, well, you know, we want to we want to have some of these big jobs and big yeah. titles and, and, you know, we can be just like a man and we'll dress like men and we'll we're no different yeah. and we can do everything a man can do. Right. Um, and not to be feminine, right? And then I I feel as though my generation wanted wanted that feminine yeah. piece and sort of said, well, no, actually, you know, we're different than men, and what we bring to the table is different, and mm -hmm. we should celebrate that, and that should be celebrated. 
And I, I feel almost as though it's just, like, like yeah. it's only been a few years yeah. that people are like, yeah, feminine, you know, feminine <laughs> stuff is good. You know, so, you know, and I think we could, there's a, there's a means by which you can take it too far. And yeah. I would never be on the side of saying, you know, although I, I like the catchphrase, the, the, the future is female, when, you know, when I think about it, I don't like it because, you know, I have a son. Yeah. And the future is also about him. And I don't want him to feel like, you know, he's being yeah. pushed out because mm -hmm. women are, you know, I, I want it to be a balance where everybody yeah. can, everybody can find their, their path and every opportunity is open to them. Exactly. But it, it, it is interesting because I think, you know, to me, all the study and work that I've done with women around the world through Vital Voices I do see women bring something different to the table as leaders. Mm -hmm. And I think that difference is so needed and I want it to continue to be celebrated and highlighted. Yeah. But at the same time, I am trying to figure out how do I respect, you know, the views of Generation Z because yeah. I completely get that as well. You know, I mean, we all grew up saying, well, you're going to have pink and you're going to have Barbies yeah. and that's what you like. I mean, I don't know how we think that. I don't think my yeah. parents told me that, but society tell I mean, we, we're rejecting that. I think Gen Z is very smart to say, no, we don't want that. Mm -hmm. We want to create who we are, and we can have this, we can yeah. have that. But it's how do we balance that with, you know, the fact that there are differences. Yeah. You know, and are we not yeah. to acknowledge biological differences? I think that the difference is that what Gen Z is questioning is whether those differences are explained by biological reasons, if that makes sense. So I think that a lot of... Gen Z would say me being more empathetic or me being more li to, like listen better is not because I'm biologically different. It's because I'm, I'm not speaking for all of Gen Z, but they would say yeah. I listen better because as a girl, I have to stay quiet and let the man speak first and then I can say something. Or they say, you know, I was taught to be more thoughtful, but society taught me that. I'm not like that. And so it's mm. not a, it's not because I was born female. It was because my identity pushed the societal construct onto me. And so I think that, I, I honestly think that it's really been eye-opening to be here because you really see that you cannot push these new ideas forward on an international level mm -hmm. because it's not equitable. You know, it's the fact that being gay and being transgender are incredibly new ideas in some international communities mm. you know so it's it, and it is you know it's, it's relatively new that people are able to embrace feminine qualities right and I think it's changing so fast and and with the rise in technology it's changing faster than it has ever been before like I joke but it is really true that my sister two years behind me thinks differently understands things differently gets her news differently I am on Facebook. She thinks Facebook is for old people and only uses Snapchat, lives through Snapchat, and it's all about you know the augmented reality of living through what your identity is through social media on this lens that imposes an image onto you. Like literally, it's, it's this, and it's a two-year difference. And we have absolutely wow. different views. And my younger sister, who's five years younger than me, thinks even more differently. She has no friends on Facebook. She gets all of her news through Snapchat, real news from CNN, and, you know, and it's just the headliner that says, you know, Harvard uh, takes away acceptances for obscene memes. Like that was the one today that she texted me. And we just think so differently. And her, gener her group is just not even talking about race and gender yet because they're saying we're just not going to think about it. Wow. And it's changing really fast. And I think that it is hard to work on an international level 
in feminism because what feminism looks like here is so different from what it looks like mm -hmm. here in South Africa. Exactly, around the world. Yeah. I mean, one of the, the big aha moments for me, you know, having grown up in the United States, my mother um, has a, a master's degree in math and, mm -hmm. and also a master's degree in art and wanted to be an architect. And, you know, she was a great student, but everyone said, you know, no one's gonna ever hire a woman to build and design a strong mm -hmm. structure. You know, that's what she yeah. was told, you know, but yet, I knew that my sister, my brother and I were, you know, you can do whatever you want. So sort of growing up with that, I, you know, went into the world thinking, well, it's not fair and, what yeah. you, you know, and, but my view of what um, feminism was, was completely rocked when I went to the UN Fourth World Conference on Women because I realized we were dealing with some of these more micro issues. They were dealing with these macro issues, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Poverty alleviation, right? I mean really, you know, seismic issues yeah. that were global issues, that were development issues, that were women's issues, right? Yeah. But they weren't necessarily seen as women's issues Absolutely. in the United States feminist yeah. context. So it is it is fascinating and it'll be yeah. interesting to see does that Gen Z perspective take root around the world? I mean, I think that maybe it will eventually. It's just that the social progression is so much more like ahead then you know it's just it's such a gap yeah. that I think it makes it difficult and I, I have so much respect for anyone who works in international development because it's so dif different like the I just with so in my field of menstrual health and working with menstrual health advocacy there are activists who will not work with people who say menstrual hygiene because they see hygiene as an unfeminist term because it implies that menstruation is dirty without these products and mm -hmm. these products that are marketed to us uh, with big corporations with taxes on them. So we spend time on the phone arguing about this hygiene versus health term and we will go back and forth and there are companies that will refuse to work with organizations that say feminine hygiene or make it gendered. And then you talk to someone in, in the developing community and they say, we can't even have those conversations yeah. because we don't even have a bathroom. <laughs> and like, we need to be fighting about the bathroom before we can even talk about menstruation, before we can talk about period products, before we can talk about inserting any sort of product, before we can talk about terms, you know? Right. And so I think that we're, we, like in the developed world, we're so caught up in these terms that I think while it's important because social progress needs to be constantly happening and we need to be having that understanding of you use these terms and I use these terms and where can we unite, we also have to keep in mind on it is a privilege to have those conversations and uh, we have to keep in mind that we want to be productive even mm. when we want to have those conversations. Mm. Wow, well this has been a fascinating conversation. I hope we can continue it. P potentially debate style <laughs> voices. <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for all your work and your great leadership. Well, thank We're you for Vital Voices. Proud. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks.